There's a term that I heard often growing up, and it always seemed to create a strong reaction in some young people. It's the term worldly. Worldly. Preachers would frequently preach against being a worldly Christian. Depending on the things that you wore, the movies you watched, the people you hung out with, or the places that you went. And let me be clear that what they said was not wrong. But I was often left wondering what worldliness actually was. I could identify things that were worldly, but I couldn't tell you why they were worldly. When I got to college, it became apparent to me that I was not the only one who faced that difficulty. I was sitting in a class one day, and the professor asked the class, how do you know if something is worldly? Well, my ears perked up. This was a question that I had asked myself many times over. One of my classmates raised their hand. The professor called on him, and he said, if it is popular, it's worldly. And the professor agreed with him. I'm not trying to be rebellious when I say this, but there are a lot of things that are popular that are not necessarily worldly. Just because it's common doesn't mean that it's wrong. There are a lot of things that people do, but that doesn't make them worldly because people do them. And so I continued with this struggle, and I really began an earnest search in my own life to try and define what it was to be worldly. I asked myself the question, what in the world is worldliness? And so I came to the classic passage of Scripture that we go to when we talk about worldliness. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15, 16, and 17. Read along with me there. The Bible says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. This passage answers the question, what in the world is worldliness? It speaks against our loving the world and the things of this world. Because if we love the world, then we do not have the love of the Father in us. It addresses our lusts and defines what the things that are in the world really are. And they are the actions or attitudes that come from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And finally, we're warned that this world does not last. This world passes away and the lusts of it. But those who do the will of God abide forever. Friend, if you are saved tonight, then you have eternal life. And therefore, you should not live for the world that is temporary. You should live for the God who loves you and who saved you. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us as we look into your word tonight to understand it better. And help us not to just acknowledge the truth in our head, but may we live the truth in our life. May it change 
our everyday behaviors, as we think about what worldliness is and why we should not be worldly. And ultimately, Lord, that our lives would bring you glory and honor by our living for you and for eternity. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Notice with me, number one, what verse number 15 has to say about our loves. About our loves. We must first understand that worldliness is a matter of the heart. Too often an emphasis is placed on external factors like appearances or outside influences and too little has been put on the condition of the heart. And I fear that because of this imbalance and emphasis, it gave a lot of Christians who were wanting to do worldly things anyway an excuse to do them. Because I heard all the time growing up, but from teenage Christians who wanted to look like and live like the world, they would say, well, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And God knows my heart. And so, you know, I can go and I can dress however I want and I can get uh, all the tattoos I want and I can get all the piercings that I want and I can dress like this rock band and I can grow with this cra- go with this crowd and I can do all of these things because God knows my heart. Now, I hope you understand that that's baloney. You don't get to go and do just whatever you want to do and excuse it by saying, well, God knows my heart. But because there was such an emphasis many times on, uh, on the externals and not on the heart, there became an imbalance there. And what, what we need to realize, first of all, tonight is that before this passage talks about what the things of the world are, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it addresses where our love is. Verse 15 says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Let me say this. Stick with me here. If a person is worldly, it's not because they did a worldly thing. If they are worldly, it's because they desired a worldly thing, and they lived out that desire. Do you understand the difference tonight? It goes literally to our hearts. What do we love? What do we desire? What do we want more than anything? Do we want the things of this world? Or do we want to love and live for God? There are only two choices for who or what you will love. Look what verse 15 says. You have the option to love the world. But know this, that if you do, the love of the Father is not in you. So there are your two options right there. You can either love the world and the things of the world, or you can love God. But you cannot do both. They are mutually exclusive. And you know, a lot of times we think, well, I can love, I can, I can love God mostly. But you know, there's some things about the world that, you know, I, I kind of want to love. It doesn't work that way. It's an either-or proposition. Loving God and loving the world are mutually exclusive. If you love the one, you do not love the other. Listen to how Jesus said it in Matthew 6, 24. No man can serve two masters. Notice this. For either he will hate the one and, what's that word that comes next? Love the other. 
or else you will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The word mammon there is material things like wealth and possessions. You can't do both. You can't love God and love the world. The Bible is clear on this point. And it's also very clear on which one we're supposed to love. It's not like God has said, all right, you can only love one, but I don't really care which one. Either love me or love the world, doesn't matter. No, God has been very clear about this. The greatest commandment of all is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's what Jesus said when he was asked, which is the greatest commandment? Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. That is commandment number one, to love God. And what you love determines how you will live. Understand this about what you love. What you love is your choice. Contrary to what the fairy tales say, and contrary to what every Hallmark movie ever made says, you don't fall into and out of love. Love is a choice. You decide where you are going to place your affections, where you are going to find your fulfillment, where your desires are going to be focused. And as a Christian, you should place your affections on the Lord and on eternal things. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. If ye be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, and not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ and God. Verse number 2 tells us that we have to make a choice about where we put our affections. Are we going to set our affections on earthly things, or are we going to set our affections on heavenly things? The Bible is clear that we, as children of God, must not love the world. Because notice again what verse 15 says. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What does that mean? What does it mean that the love of the Father is not in him? Well, don't misunderstand what this verse is saying. It's not saying that God only loves you if you love him, or that if you choose to love the world, then God will no longer love you. That's not what it's saying. John makes it very clear in his book, in chapter 4, that we love God because he first loved us. He does not love us in return for our love for him. Rather, we love him in response to his love for us. So it's not saying that there's some kind of a uh, reciprocation here where if we will love God, then God will love us. But rather what it is saying is that if you love the world, then you do not love God as you should. Your love, the, the love for the Father is not in you. There's another way to think of it. Your love for God is not what it should be if you love the world. And to the degree that you love the world, that is the degree that you do not love God as you should. And it is entirely possible for a Christian's love for God to diminish over time. And our love for the world instead to grow. And that's a sad state for a Christian to be in. Revelation 2, verse number 4, 
The Lord Jesus Christ said to the church at Ephesus, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Notice again the emphasis there on a choice, a decision that's made. It didn't say you lost it. You left it. So the Lord told them to repent and redo, to do the first works again. It's our choice who we love. And if you love the world, you do not love God as you should. That is the plain truth of 1 John 2.15. And what follows in verse 16 then is the reason why you cannot love both God and the world. It's because the things of the world are characterized by things that are exactly the opposite of God's nature. So number two, let's notice from verse 16, our lusts. Our lusts. For all that is in the world. Okay, here it is. Here's the definition, the Bible definition of worldliness. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. When you love the world, what you are really loving are the things that appeal to your fleshly lusts. Your fleshly lusts are not from God. They are sourced in sin. And that is why you cannot simultaneously love the world and the things of the world and love God. They are polar opposites. Now we all have innate lusts. Desires that have been corrupted by sin, and it's those lusts that Satan tries to exploit to tempt us to sin. Turn over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Let's look together at verses 14 and 15. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own, what's that next word there? Lust. Of his own lust. We all have them. Desires that have been corrupted by sin. God created man with certain cravings, certain desires that initially were perfect. They were holy. There was nothing wrong with them. But sin came and all of creation was affected. And those desires were corrupted. And we are tempted when those lusts draw us away from God and we are enticed. Then, verse 15, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And it is these lusts that Satan tries to appeal to to get us to sin. 1 John 2.16 breaks it down into three basic kinds of lusts. And every sin that we commit will fall into one of these three categories. Sometimes there's some overlap. The first kind are the lusts of the flesh. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh is the first thing he lists. Now the flesh here is talking about your physical body. It's that part of you that you use to interact with the world around you. It includes your five senses, includes your natural cravings and desires. And there are many sins that appeal to the lust of the flesh, our physical desires. Okay, immorality and fornication would be a prime example of that. 
substance abuse and addictions are other sins that appeal to your flesh. And there are sins that are maybe less drastic, but sins of the flesh nonetheless, like slothfulness, laziness, gluttonous, gluttony, that sort of a thing. Any type of a sin that is appealing to your physical nature would fall in this category. But then there's a second basic kind of lust. Verse 16 says, the lust of the eyes. And what you see goes into your mind and causes you to think about it. Let me illustrate it. What are you thinking about right now? You're thinking, why in the world does the pastor have the phone on the pulpit? Because I have an app right here that if I go too long, Brother Dean hits a button and it blows up in my face. No, by simply viewing something, it caused you to think about something. That's how, our eyes is one of the primary ways that we take in information, but there's many other ways. We hear uh, we, we interact with the world with all of our senses. Smell is a way that you take in information. That's useful, especially when you're checking the leftovers in the fridge, you know. And so this is, this is talking about things that enter into your mind from the outside. Lust of the eyes. These are things that affect your thinking. And that's why the psalmist said, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I'm not even going to look at wicked things because they will make me think about wicked things. He says, I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. 2 Peter 2 verse number 8 says of Lot, For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. So the lust of the eyes are desires that are aroused, sinful desires that are aroused by the things that you see and primarily are sins committed in the mind by thinking wrong thoughts. Covetousness is a great example of this kind of a lust. You see something you don't have and you want it. You're not content with what God's given you, but you want something different, you want something more, you covet it. Envy is a close relative of covetousness. Discontentment, murmuring, complaining, all in that same family of sin. A lot of times when we think of lust of the eyes, people immediately go to one sin in particular. Viewing immoral images, pornography. That would be both, I believe, lust of the eyes and lust of the flesh. But then there's a third basic kind of lust, and that is the pride of life. Now I'm calling lust, or calling pride a lust, because pride is an illegitimate desire. It's a desire to exalt yourself. It's a desire for praise and for worship for yourself. It's the desire to take for yourself the glory that belongs to God. And pride was the original sin. Satan said, for I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Pride. And for that he was expelled from heaven. And that same sinful desire to exalt oneself has plagued man ever since the Garden of Eden. 
Now turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 3. Speaking of the Garden of Eden. I think it's interesting that in both the story of the fall of man and the temptation of Christ in the wilderness, we find all three of these elements present in the temptations. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And in both instances, it was Satan who introduced the lusts. So notice Genesis 3. We're just going to read the one verse, verse number 6. There's been this conversation between Eve and Satan, who was in the form of a serpent. And verse 6 says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Notice these elements. Eve saw that the tree was good for food. That's an appeal to the flesh. Is it a sin to be hungry? I sure hope not. But it is possible to fulfill that desire in a sinful way. To consume things that are not right, whether it be through gluttony, whether it be through substance abuse. That was an appeal to the flesh. Then notice it, she noticed that it was a, it was pleasant to the eyes. This looks good. I want it. Has it ever struck you? We don't even know how many other options there were in the garden to eat. There could have been tens of thousands of other vegetables, fruits, and nuts that she could have chosen. But this one, that God said, don't eat it. That was the one that she said, I want it. There's the lust of the eyes. And then she noticed that this fruit was desired to make one wise. What had Satan told her? That God doth know in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt be as gods, knowing good and evil. Oh, here's some new knowledge, something that I can have, something God's trying to withhold it from me. And there was this prideful desire to have something that would make them more godlike, but something that God had not authorized. That was the introduction of pride to man. All three elements present at the very first sin. Now turn to Matthew chapter 4. Let's look at the temptation of Christ. I'm so thankful, by the way, that God included the record of Christ's temptation for us. If not, then when we read in Hebrews 4, He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin, we may be left to wonder, was He really? After all, He is God. So did he, was He really tempted in the same way that we are? But when we come to Matthew chapter 4, we find that yes, yes, He was. Now in Matthew 4, Jesus was led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, verse 3, this is the first temptation. If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Now, which of these three types of lust, three types of desires, do you think 
Satan was trying to appeal to here. A fleshly desire. Now, in Christ's case, there was no sinful nature to appeal to. Understand that. But Christ did have natural God-giving cravings like the craving for food. And it says here that he was hungry. So he had the desire, and what Satan tempted him to do was to fulfill that desire, satisfy that desire in an unauthorized way. To exercise his power as God for selfish purposes by turning a rock into bread. So there was the temptation, and what did Jesus say? In verse 4, he answered and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Well, that didn't work, so the devil tries again. In verse 5, the devil taketh him up into a holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of a temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Did you know that Satan can quote Scripture? Did you know that Satan knows the Bible better than you? He quoted Scripture to Jesus in this temptation. The temptation was, throw yourself down and prove that you are the Son of God by requiring God to miraculously save you from that choice. Now, for Jesus to have done that, it would have been a very prideful presumption. And Jesus said, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Well, that didn't work. So verse 8, the devil taketh him up into exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And saith unto them, all these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. And here we have a very powerful combination of both what Jesus saw, Satan trying to use that to create a desire, and the element of pride, of wanting all of that glory. Now here's the thing. All of the glory of all of the nations of the world has already been promised to Jesus. What Satan was offering him was a shortcut. Well, if you'll just bow down to me, I'll give it to you now. And when Jesus said, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. So all of those elements are present, even in the temptation of Christ. These are the things of the world, what they are characterized by. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So anything that appeals to any of those lusts is then by definition worldly. What you wear can be worldly if it appeals to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. I know we often think of worldly clothing being immodest clothing. But you know, when you are using your fashion to try and boost your status and your image with other people, that's worldly too. Because that's the pride of life. Where you go can be worldly. If it's a place that you go there because it appeals to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. What you watch can be worldly. Where or What you listen to, music that you listen to, the news that you listen to, 
what you look at on the internet, through social media or news sites, all of these things can be worldly. And we cannot afford to be indiscriminate in these things. We have to make up our minds, I'm not going to love the things of this world. Because if I love the things of this world, then I'm not loving God as I should. And so I don't watch that movie because it's full of filth. It's full of cursing. It's full of immorality. It's promoting things that God says are, uh, are, are evil. I'm not going to love that. I'm not going to be a consumer of that because I want to love God like I should. I'm not going to associate with these people and allow them to influence me because they're not going to lead me in a godly direction. They're going to lead me to, down a path that appeals to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And if I follow them and if I love the, their ways, I'm not loving God as I should. If it's worldly, it's not of God. And therefore, we should avoid it at all costs. It's not about, it's not so much about maintaining a certain image that a certain group of Christians says, this is what a Christian looks like. See, that's our problem. Let me step out a little bit here. We are very good at defining for ourselves and for others what we think a Christian should look like. And by and large, it's based on external things. And we tend to judge ourselves and others based on those external things that we decided were what a Christian should be. Now, you know me. There are few people more conservative in their personal standards than I am. There are some. Amish, I can think of. So do not misunderstand what I'm saying tonight. I am not promoting a license to sin. But what I am saying is that the spirit of the Pharisees is alive and well today. And judging people based on man-made external standards and ignoring the issues of the heart. It's entirely possible to show up at church Sunday morning modestly dressed, sharply dressed, carrying your Bible, singing the hymns, saying all the right words, and being a worldly person. Because you're doing it for the pride of life. There are issues of the heart that we cannot ignore. Number three, let's notice now the things that last. We've looked at our loves, we've looked at our lusts, so let's look finally at the things that last from verse 17 back in our text. And the world passeth away, and lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. 
If you are saved, you have eternal life. Amen? You have eternal life. You have been given everlasting life by the Lord Jesus Christ. He has the right to give that to you because He's the one who died and rose again, proving He has eternal life to give. And so when you trusted Him as your Savior, you were given eternal life. That's what this phrase, He that doeth the will of God abideth forever, is talking about. It's not saying that if you will perform to a certain level, then God will then give you eternal life as a reward. That's not what it's saying. But listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. So only the people who do the will of God will have eternal life. What is the will of God in this context? Well, the will of God is for people to believe on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And everyone who does that is saved from their sin and receives eternal life. John said this, wrote this rather, in John 6 and verse number 40. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone that seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. He that doeth the will of God abideth forever. This is the will of him that sent me, that everyone that seeth the Son and believeth on him hath everlasting life. So John is not saying that we earn eternal life by performing certain duties, but rather he's making the point that those who are saved abide forever. We have eternal life. And this is in contrast, notice in the verse, in contrast to the world which passeth away. The world and the lusts thereof, they pass away. They do not last. So here's the question. Why would we waste our lives on things that don't last? I don't know about you, but I get frustrated with things that don't last. And then I get frustrated because I have some things that I didn't want to last and they won't die, you know. I go and buy the cheap tool because I'm thinking, all right, when this one breaks, I'll get the good one. 20 years later, I'm like, it's still working. But then you do buy something and you're thinking, all right, this is an investment. I'm going to keep this for a good long time. Six months later, it breaks and it's irreparable and you're having to replace it. It doesn't last. A worldly Christian is wasting their life for things that they will one day regret living for. The world passeth away, and the lusts thereof. But you who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you who have done the will of God, you abide forever. So why would you, with, who has eternal life, live for things that are temporary? Every worldly pursuit and every worldly pleasure is seasonal. What a... Hebrews 11 say about Moses, he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. A season. What is a season? Well, it's just a short interval of time. It starts and it ends. Depending on where you live in the country, those seasons have longer or shorter times. But a season, by definition, doesn't last. And Moses made the choice, look, I'm not going to live for all the pleasures and all the riches of, of Egypt because they don't last. 
They're just for a season. And why would we live for the temporary pleasure of fulfilling some lust of the flesh, some lust of the eyes, or, or the pride of life, instead of spending our lives investing in eternal things? You know, we think of this, in, and we often uh, preach and teach on this in the context of giving and money. Jesus said, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. But you know, there are more kinds of treasures than just dollars in our bank accounts. You know, one of the most valuable asset, assets that you have is your time. That's why we, we speak of it in terms of spending our time. What are you doing with your life? Are you living for the things of this world? Are you living for God? If you're living for this world, then all the things that you are investing are in are one day, they're going to vanish away. They're going to burn up. They're going to be gone. And you will regret having wasted your time and your life on those things. You see, the issue of worldliness is much more than just what we see on the outside. It's more than just the music we listen to or just the movies that we watch because the issue of worldliness comes down to what do I love? Do I love God or not? It's about your lusts. What are you desiring and are you fulfilling the fleshly desires? Or are you doing what God wants you to do? And it's about the things that last. Don't waste your life on earthly things. Invest your life in eternity. If you are saved, Christian, understand that you have eternal life and therefore you should not love the world or live for the world. You must love God. And live for Him. The heads bowed and eyes closed this evening. You know, oftentimes at the start of a new year, we're thinking about, you know, what, what can we do better in this year ahead of us? Some people make, you know, New Year's resolutions. I want to do this better. I want to do that better. But can I encourage you tonight? to at least consider this for this new year. To consider how you can live a life that demonstrates more love for God. It's easy to brush off what a preacher says about this particular movie or that particular style or this particular music. It's easy to brush that off and just say, oh, well, that's just his opinion. That's just his personal preference. But I'm not here to, to push on you my personal preferences. I want to encourage you tonight to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. Because if you love God like you should, you'll live for Him. If you love God like you should, you won't love the world. You won't live for worldly things. 
the solution to not living a worldly life is the love of God like you should. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you would work in us and press this truth on our hearts that we would love you with all of our being and that we would live for you every single day. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.